When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. abductions are real, who are the abductors? Are they malevolent beings that are using human beings as lab rats? What is the overall purpose of these abductions? Is it for genetic testing, creating alien-human hybrids, or some other nefarious purpose? Many have reported being dealt with rather harshly or treated with little empathy during their abductions. Over 40,000 people in the U.S. alone vanish each year without any trace of their disappearance. Are some being abducted and never brought back? Are some in the U.S. government or even world governments aware of these abductions? If so, what is their knowledge of it? Terry Lovelace, author of The Incident at Devil's Den, joins me to talk about his disturbing abduction experience and much more. Well, greetings and uh, welcome to Passion for the Paranormal, bringing a passion for the paranormal to you. I'm your host, Curry Stegan, and uh, it's so wonderful to be back here with you once again. Uh, I'm excited to have the guest that's joining me tonight, and his name is Terry Lovelace. And uh, I've been trying to put together an interview with Terry for a long time. We finally made it happen. Uh, Terry is a fellow Air Force veteran, just like I am. And uh, he's also the author of uh, the book, The Incident at Devil's Den, where uh, he recounts a very disturbing uh, alien abduction account he and a friend of his had while serving in the Air Force way back in 1977. So, so excited to have Terry on the show. You're not going to want to miss this interview. And uh, if you haven't been over to the uh, Facebook page yet, please head over to facebook.com slash passion, the number four, the paranormal, and make sure you like and follow us there. We also have a new Facebook group, the Passion for the Paranormal Facebook group. We talk about a lot of topics that uh, I cover here on the show. Uh, so if you want to join the Facebook group, you'll find a link on the Facebook page. You can just... Uh, or you can just type in Passion for the Paranormal Group, and uh, it'll pop up. You can ask to be approved in the group there. And, uh, again, we talk about a lot of uh, different paranormal topics on the, on the uh, Facebook group, and it's a lot of fun. So hopefully you'll join the Facebook group as well. And if you haven't been over to the website, please head over to Passion, the number four, theparanormal.com. And uh, there you can catch up with past episodes. Uh, we've got some new Passion for the Paranormal merchandise available on the uh, website. Uh, you can pick up a hoodie, a t-shirt, uh, a coffee mug. They make great holiday gifts and uh, fairly reasonably priced. So uh, please hop over there and visit. And uh, maybe you'll uh, want to pick up a t-shirt or a hoodie or something like that uh, for uh, a family member or somebody else who's a listener of the show. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is uh, word of mouth is one of the most powerful ways to, to, to share things. If you have a friend, a family member, or a coworker you think would like to tune into the show, Please share a link with them and let them know about it. Uh, again, that's the most powerful way to share, uh, to uh, advertise, and to share with people. 
So hopefully you'll do that. And uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is uh, if you are a Apple, an iTunes account user, if you have an iPad, an iPhone, or you just have an iTunes account, and uh, you tune into the show that way, please make sure to hit the subscribe button and rate and review the show. Uh, it only takes a minute, and uh, it helps us. It goes a long way in helping proof the show and help others to tune into it. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this discussion with Terry. Uh, again, I, you don't want to miss this discussion. I think it's going to be an amazing one. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Okay, joining me on the show tonight is Terry Lovelace, and Terry served in the Air Force as a medic and EMT at Whiteman Air Force Base from 1973 to 1979 and earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Park University and a law degree from Western Michigan. He practiced law for many years before retiring as an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont in 2012. In 1977, while serving in the Air Force, Terry and a friend of his had a UFO encounter and abduction experience while camping in Devil's Den State Park in Arkansas. Terry is author of the book Incident at Devil's Den, which was published in 2018, where he talks about the event and about his UFO encounters as a child. Terry also speaks at numerous UFO conferences and events throughout the U.S. Hey, happy Veterans Day, Terry, and uh, welcome to the show. Hey, happy Veterans Day to you, vice versa. Yeah. I know you're a uh, United States Air Force veteran yourself. That is correct. Uh, retired <laughs> a couple of years back, and uh, I know you served six years. Thank you for your service, and it's uh, it's an honor to have you on the show. I've been aware of your story for quite some time, and I've always been fascinated by it, as well as many other UFO accounts out there. There's there's so many out there, but uh, I, I was always fascinated by yours. I, I got through some of the book, didn't get through all of it. Um, but uh, maybe if you could take us back, um, and I know you had an incident that happened a couple of years before the incident at Devil's Den, uh, you and Toby, while you were serving on duty. Can you talk a little bit about that first incident you had? Yeah, that was two years earlier. That was a cold January night. Uh, 1975, and we were, uh, Toby and I worked the emergency room together, and we, we drove an ambulance, and we responded to, you know, anything on the base, a heart attack, an airplane crash, uh, you know, whatever it was, we, you know, we were there, and um, we had a call to, I, I refer to it as Kilo 5, and I think that actually was the name of it, and it was a launch control facility uh, where they housed a uh, Minutemen 2, ICBM, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile, and a missile technician doing routine uh, missile maintenance fell uh, off a ladder. Uh, the Minutemen 2 is 60 foot in length, and there are panels along the side of the thing. And uh, we had to go out to pick him up. And when we got to the scene, uh, we... They had a roadblock set up about a mile from the place, and there was this big orange glow all over the site where it was uh, about 20 uh, security police guys uh, with M16s. I mean, they were taking this, uh, you know, like a, like a breach. And uh, we had no idea what was going on, but it was, it was below zero. And all of these exhaust fumes mixed with all of these overhead lights kind of going out of sync made this really eerie uh, glow over the, over the place. Uh, we, we rolled up on the scene, and uh, here's this captain standing in the road, 
with a microphone, you know, a walkie-talkie in his hand. And uh, he's like, pull over there. Your man's walking and talking. I'll let you know when you can go in. But till I authorize it, nobody goes in, nobody comes out. And he's referencing the gate that goes into the little area where, I don't know if you, if you were ever on a sack base, where they, where they had a launch control facility. And they have a little trapezoid building. And you open the door and there's an elevator with one button. And it goes down uh, 60 feet to the base of the, of the missile. And uh, we're sitting there in this ambulance with the engine running. And our windows are frosted over. And I, I can't see what's going on. I, I told Toby, I said, hey, man, why, you know, I, I want to know what's going on. And uh, the captain had said specifically, stay in your vehicle and stay off the radio. So, you know, Toby being kind of uh, impetuous, throws on a parka and, and opens the door and says, I'm going to have a look-see. And he gets out, of, gets out of ambulance and shuts the door. I'm thinking, oh, here we go. And he comes back about three minutes later, and he opens my door, and he grabs me by the shoulder, and he's pulling me out of the ambulance and saying, saying man, you have got to see this. You have got to see this. And I'm like, Toby, calm down. Let me grab my parka. What do you and I, I got out of the ambulance, I'm throwing in my parka, and everyone is looking up, including the captain, with his mouth open. And 50 feet, there's a, there's a blue dome that covers the uh, launch tube. And 50 feet over this blue tube, lit up by all of these security police vehicles, uh, you know, they had those searchlights on. And lit up is this, uh, about the size of a suburban, kind of a diamond-shaped, matte black thing. Now, I don't know what it was, but it was crazy. I mean, when I first saw it, you know, your mind kind of rebels. And, I mean, I'm looking for wires, and I'm thinking, what? You know, and then I realized that's sitting absolutely stationary in the air. Wow. And uh, it, it was incredible. And I'm standing next to the captain, and while we're watching, this tale takes place over the span of about 10 seconds. While we're watching, the thing shoots off over the horizon. I mean, zero to 1,000 miles an hour in the blink of an eye, and it's gone. And his captain turns around and smiles at me real big, like, did you see what I saw? And I mean, for a moment, it was, it was like, you know, Frank was aside, and he was just a, you know, just a fellow human being. And then he, he snaps back into it and says, get your ambulance, we'll get your guy up, and you can go in and get him. And uh, we got our guy, and he fell and broke his ankle. And the captain had him seated in this little trapezoid building with the elevator with no windows, and he was seated in a chair with his foot on a trash can. So he hears all hell breaking loose outside. And he's like, what's going on? What did I miss? What's going on out there? What did I see? What, what's that? What? You know, he was just... I felt sorry for the guy, you know, all the way back in, in the ambulance. Instead of talking about, you know, his ankle, uh, you know, he was talking about, what did you guys see? What did you guys see? <laughs> and, of course, we told him everything, you know. And uh, he's like, oh, man, I missed it. And uh, I, th I thought it was really funny. I expected the uh, security police to debrief us. Now, the, the hospital commander debriefed us and asked us each to draw a picture of what we saw which we did, and uh, he made photocopies and kept the originals and the photocopies. 
and he asked to see my uh, my ambulance run report. And of course, I made no mention of you know I'm seeing this diamond cut UFO hanging around. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um, but what he did do was the, uh, the times. There was a, a lag time, I guess, that, that concerned him. And before he made a copy of my report, he took a black magic marker and marked out the time. All the times. The time that we left and the time that we returned and initialed it, and says, don't worry about the times. He ran a photocopy, gave me the photocopy, and said, here, file this for your report, which I did. And on our way out of the hospital, coincidentally, we see um, um, a security police captain and a sergeant giving this, giving this poor guy the third degree, you know, the, the patient that we carried in. And I'm like, this is kind of nuts. They're, you know, they're talking to the only guy out there that didn't see anything. And uh, it was pretty funny, but you know, it wasn't—it wasn't the least bit uh, paranormal to, to us. You know, we were certain that that thing somewhere on it had either CCCP or USAF on it. I mean, we didn't—we didn't think of it as a as a UFO. I mean, as a kid, I saw UFOs twice: once when I was eight, and once when I was eleven, and they were saucers. You know, so my logic at age 22 was, well, this wasn't a saucer, ergo, this is not a UFO. Right. And uh, Whiteman, along with uh, all, all the other SAC bases, uh, the, the, the buzz was, now I never saw this personally, but security police guys told me about this. Uh, and I don't know what your AFSC was, but they swore that there was an orange disc that would show up once or twice a year over the bunker where they kept the nukes for the B-52s and shine a laser-like light down on, on, on the bunkers. Now, like I say, that's hearsay. I never saw that. I only heard that from people who said they saw it. But I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, that's interesting because uh, that, seems, that sounds similar to accounts made like at Rendlesham when uh, these uh, UFOs had been over the bunkers that yeah. that sort of thing. So that that sounds kind of similar to some of the other accounts I've heard at missile bases. And you had Robert Solis that talked about his encounter at uh, at uh, I think it was Malmstrom Air Force Base. Yeah, was a missile officer, and that kind of sounds similar. And that's interesting. Uh, what I would would uh, like to ask about this triangular craft that you've seen now. Do you do you remember hearing any any noise at all associated with it? No, no, it was dead silent. 
and I'll tell you, when, when, you, when I talk about silence, uh, I really need to delve into the, the topic just a little bit. Uh, my friend uh, Toby came up with this, uh, this idea that we, could, we should go camping. Now, I, neither one, he grew up in Flint, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. Neither one of us had ever been camping before in our lives. And I'm like, well, you know, I had a nice camera I wanted to try out, and you really can't do much with a camera on a sack base. So <laughs> sure. he said, let's, you know, let's, let's uh, go out. You can photograph wildlife. And this guy, he was a really smart kid. Uh, he had taken uh, physics classes from the Extension University and aced them all. Uh, and he really, really wanted to go to University of Michigan uh, and study cosmology or astronomy, one or the other, and then uh, get a uh, PhD and then do postdoctorate work. And he had it all, he had his future all planned and it all involved the night sky. So um, he said, this is great little park. Uh, it's got uh, high ground on it, lots of rocks and uh, bluffs and stuff. And he says, we just go to a piece of high ground, set up camp, and he said, you know, you can photograph wildlife all day. I'll sit up and watch the sky at night because uh, there'll be no light pollution. And uh, I didn't realize he was thinking, well, we're not going to stay in the campground, which, you know, kind of makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're going to go out and photograph wildlife and look at the night sky, campground isn't the place to do it. I mean, you might as well camp in Walmart's parking lot, you know. <laughs> yeah. so we trespassed, actually. I don't know. I posted it on my Incident at Devil's Den Facebook page. I just got a um, um, map coordinates from Astonishing Legends from uh, uh, Scott Philbrook. Using my description from Devil's Den, he found the spot. It's still there, exactly as we described it. And in the book... I talk about this OSI agent giving me a hard time saying, do you boys know that's federal land? And I'm thinking, no, are you nuts? I'm not that stupid. It wasn't federal land. That's a state park. But we had trespassed. And according to Google Earth, and if you go on my website or my Facebook page there, you can see the Google Earth uh, views. And it shows a triangular-shaped uh, piece of land, actually kind of horseshoe-shaped in a weird way, it was horseshoe-shaped from the ground anyway when we were there. But here's the interesting thing. It's an elevated plateau. It has no paved roads to it, just ruts in the road. But the top of that thing should be covered with 40-year-old mature trees. It's not. It's groomed. Uh, matter of fact, a landscaper sent me a, uh, a note and said, yeah, he says, I'm looking. He says, this is cut. He says, this is, this is groomed. So the U.S. government, and it is, it, it is still to this day restricted federal, restricted federal ground. We went through a chain fence, uh, thinking we were going deeper into the park. We didn't know we were going into a federal uh, preserve. And uh, it's astonishing to me that uh, I, I, I mean, I had nightmares after I saw it because it is, it is the same place where this all happened, and the U.S. government. Uh, the, I, I guess it would be the Bureau of Land Management, because I don't think it would be the Parks Department, spending off, burning off a lot of gas over the past 40 years, keeping that spot, um, you know, groomed so not so nicely. And uh, I just got to ask why. Right. I think I know why. Interesting. Now, 
were you aware of after the incident the 1977 incident um later down the road did you research and find out whether there were other ufo sightings and encounters in that location i didn't i didn't at the time uh, i had my hands full with uh, being under investigation by the osi and being uh having loner burns to my eyes and i think radiation burns all over my body and uh, being sick as a dog so i had a lot on my plate uh, and I, I tell you the truth, I, I had an aversion to the place. Uh, but in 2016, when I was researching my book, uh, I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find any newspaper clippings. I couldn't find any, you know, I did about a half a dozen local papers, and I couldn't find anything to the date, which I think was June 11, 1977, a Saturday. Yeah, take us back to where this all started back in 1977. I know you're in the tent. Uh, you've seen some lights, or maybe I'm mistaken. When this thing started, you were not in the tent. Take us back yeah, to start, yeah. Let me start with the campfire. That's that's really where things get started. You know, we got off to kind of a rough start. We made a series of missteps. Nothing big, but you know, we just forgot a lot of stuff we should have brought. But you know, we may do. And we blew up some air mattresses. We had some blankets from the hospital. And uh, Toby uh, put together the tent. And we're kicked back on, on these uh, air mattresses. And uh, he, uh, we're just chatting. We're just talking. And I remember saying to him, you know, you know what, man, I can see the allure of this. I see why people go camping. This, this is pretty pleasant. And it was, the smell of the smoke and all that. And he had to gloat, and he's like, yeah, man, I told you, you know. And, and then a short while later, like, there's a lull in our conversation, and I noticed that all of the sounds of the forest that I'd heard earlier that were making it almost even difficult to talk to one another had all stopped. And it was, it was quiet. Uh, I mean, I know that sounds cliche, but I swear to God that's true. It was dead silent, and it unnerved me. And I even, our, our campfire, we lost, we even lost the breeze that we had. And in the campfire, I'm looking at this tree in back of our tent. And I'm thinking, you know what? I should see the leaves on this thing move. Even though there's not a breeze, they should move. And while I'm in that mental space, Toby says, hey, man, were those there before? And he's pointing to his left. He's got his head, head turned. And I look to my left. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he says, those lights, man. Look at those lights over there on the horizon. Were those there before? And I said, no, I don't, I don't think they were. I mean, we were in a remote area. There was nothing, I mean, anywhere. And we saw three tiny stars. Well, I shouldn't say tiny. Each star was about the same luminosity as the North Star. So they were pretty bright. And they were in this tight little triangle that sat squarely on the horizon. And when, I, uh, when I'm looking at it, we're debating about, man, I wonder what that could be, you know? And I remember this distinctly. Um, I felt this feeling of calm wash over me. And it was, um, it felt like mild sedation. And I was calm i was i was inappropriately calm and toby was in the same state of mind and there's hardly a word spoken between us and we're watching this thing 
as it as it floats across the the, the night sky, and it's tumbling in the air. It's not just moving straight, but it's tumbling. And I remember thinking that it's not just tumbling haphazardly, it's tumbling with purpose. I don't know what gave me that, that, that feeling, but I had that feeling. And it grew and it got bigger. And I remember Toby said, that thing's coming right at us. And I said, yeah, Toby, I think you're right. And we watched as this thing got huge. These three points of light just expanded, always equidistant to one another. And as it moved across the forest below us, because we were on high ground on this. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli? I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Plateau. We could see this triangular-shaped shadow which was kind of creepy, uh, move across and headed in our direction. And the lights on the apex, each point of the triangle, had kind of dimmed. So it wasn't quite as bright as it was. But it still lit up the forest pretty bright. And it comes to a stop over our heads at about 3,000 feet. And I feel another wave of sedation wash over me. And all I want to do is go to sleep. And I can't explain it, uh, and it makes no sense, but that's, that's what happened. And uh, with this thing at 3,000 feet over our heads, from underneath, there came a, uh, a beam of light. And it was a visible stream of light, uh, like a searchlight cutting through fog. Does that make sense? You could see it. And it was about the diameter of a softball, and it just, like someone flipped the switch. Boom, it was on. And it was centered right in the middle of our campfire. And that lasted for maybe a minute. And then just like someone flipped the switch again, it turned off. And immediately afterward, in its stead, there came this laser light. And this thing was bluish purple. I'm a little bit colorblind, so I have trouble with colors that are, that are not fully distinct, you know. And uh, to me, it was a bluish purple. And this blue light landed, it would land on our campsite, stay there for a millisecond, and then show up in a different place. And it was doing that like 10 times a second. So I ha- it had the illusion of, we saw this thing like dancing all over our campsite. And this, this light struck me in the chest and in the, in the lower part of my abdomen, uh, I never felt a thing. I know it struck Toby. 
And I had the feeling this thing's scanning us. And then that shuts off. So we're sitting there in the quiet. And my friend Toby stands up and says, show's over, grabs his sleeping bag, throws it in the tent, dives in on it face first. And all I wanted to do was go to sleep. And I went and I threw mine in and I fell on top of it. And the last thought that I had was, because Toby told me, he says, the crickets and the tree frogs, they'll be back. Just just wait, they'll be back. My last thought was, yeah, man, you're wrong. They, they didn't come back. <laughs> and um, I was out. I was just out. And um, about, I, I'd come to realize this had about four hours passed. And um, I'm in the tent, and I see these brilliant flashing yellow and white lights coming through the canvas of the tent. And I wake up, and I'm, I'm confused. I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, what are these like? Oh, yeah, we're camping. These must be the overhead lights of a uh, ranger's truck or something. And I could hear this. Then I could hear a noise. Then I heard a mechanical droning noise. You know, the kind of thing like a big machine would make, something that's um, more powerful than it is loud. Sure. And these, these intermittent brilliant flashes of white and yellow light. And I get to my knees, and I'm really in a lot of pain. And during one of these intermittent flashes of, of light, I can see Toby's on his knees peeking out the tent flap on his side of the tent. And he's crying. And he, he's got these tears rolling down his cheeks. And uh, that scared me. After that, all that sedation, all that, that's all gone now. I, I was i was scared. And I thought, man, I don't know what's going on. And I asked Toby, what's going on, man? And he did the universal fingers across his lips. I think they're still out there. Ooh, Toby, who are you talking about? Park rangers? Is it park rangers? And he didn't respond to me. And I got up and I moved. I got, I'm on my hands and knees and I'm, scooch him to the left with my with my left shoulder and he's now got his head on my shoulder and he's sobbing and I look out the window and I saw 12 to 15 what I first took to be children and they were walking all around this big meadow and that craft that had docked at 3,000 feet over our heads is now descending and is about 30 feet over our heads so I'm immediately impressed with how big the thing is. I mean, it's a city block on each on each leg of the triangle. It's a city block long, and it's deep. Interestingly, um, there's an account from the Hudson Valley of a woman who saw the same triangle. You know, normally they're like one-story tall uh, triangles. She saw a five-story tall triangle in the Hudson River Valley in 1977. And, um, yeah, this thing was huge. It was absolutely immense. And what was crazy was that, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But I asked Toby, I said, Toby, how are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night? And he says, man, those ain't no little kids, Terry. They ain't human beings. Look at them. Don't you remember? They took us and they hurt us. And then I, then I had some memory. Now, Obviously, I was gone for four hours, 
and uh, I have bits and pieces of memory I've recovered over the years through nightmares and through, uh, actually I just had a recent uh, hypnosis session, which was enlightening. And uh, I look at them again and I can see he's right. Their heads are disproportionately large for their torso, their arms are long, and every one of them walk with this distinctive gait. They walk like they had sore feet, like they had, you know, shoes on that were too small or something. Right. And it was just insane. And I am scared out of my wits. From the center of this craft, there came on another beam of light, about 30 feet in diameter. And again, it has that same uh, searchlight cutting through fog quality to it. It's a visible beam of white light. And these little guys are all paired up in twos and threes, and they would wander into this light and just dissolve and be gone. And I, uh, I'm, I'm just too afraid to say or do anything other than breathe. And we watched uh, until the last two guys were absorbed by the light. And as soon as they were gone, the light turned off, and the noise that it had been making stopped. And the lights on the corners of each point of the triangle that had been yellow and white now switched to all white light. And there was a beam of bright light that ran up and down this light bar, five stories tall, on the apex on the point of each of, uh, on each point of the triangle. And I remember thinking, that's what gives it the illusion that it's a twinkling star when it's in the sky. And I don't know where I got that flash of insight from, but I think that's right. And we watched it take off, and it didn't it didn't shoot off like a rocket. It, it just lifted off like a hot air balloon and just kind of rose slowly into the sky. And we rolled over on our backs, and we watched it until it was just three tiny dots of light and then one dot of white light, and then poof, it was gone. And we were so terrified, we sat in the tent. Toby had to get us breathing under control because he was hyperventilating. And I, uh, he said, man, we got to get out of here. And this sounds odd, but just that canvas covering us gave us cover. And I thought, you know, we're going to be vulnerable if we go outside this tent and we're out in the open. And to this day, I have a big aversion to being out in open, big open spaces. I'll, I'll walk a mile out of my way to get somewhere to avoid uh, cutting across an open space. And uh, I took my keys. He took a flashlight, and we darted for the car, got in. Of course, I had to turn on the dome light and check the car out. The car started right up. Thanks to Toby's unerring sense of direction, we were able to navigate out of there at night, which I didn't think was possible. He had actually made some notes on the back of a bank uh, piece of, like a bank statement that he found in my glove box with a pencil. So he knew where the turns were. And with a flashlight, he could see his, his little map. And uh, if you look at it on Google Maps, you can see its terrain was, was cut out for a... Um, a Land Rover, not for, you know, a 66 Impala. It was just 
unfortunate <laughs> we didn't break an axle. Sure. And there were two overriding uh, thoughts, and that was I had never been so thirsty in all of my life. I just wanted something to drink. That was uh, when we got back to the airbase. We were to White, and we were admitted to the hospital. Uh, I found out later we were classified as acutely ill with um, burns, uh, not classified as burns, uh, uh, or just, just they didn't classify it as a third, de third degree burn, first degree burn, second degree burn, which they should have. Um, they put burns etiology unknown. Um, and uh, arc welders burns to our eyes. And um, while I was in the hospital, they, they separated the two of us when we got to the hospital. And they, they knew we were coming because, you know, we, we, there was a chain across the road at the park for the restricted area, but it was just a chain which just locked around a loop on itself and hung over a post on a nail. So Toby got out and he lifted that, that chain up and let it drop, and we just drove in. So I think the park rangers the next morning discovered that somebody's been trespassing or maybe saw the smoke from a campfire or something. I don't know. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But uh, we left everything there, including Toby's backpack with his name and address in it. So park rangers called the base and said, hey, we think two of your guys out here had a campsite set up, and we don't know what they're doing. Uh, you know, it looks like they're planning on coming back. Maybe they got a marijuana plot out here or something. We're going to check it out. Oh, boy. So, you know, I just... Well, I'll get to that. The OSI agent. Um, I'm not sure if you had dealings with the OSI. This was my first and only dealing with the Office of Special Investigations. Yeah, and uh, I, I did uh, in the course of my career, and I actually uh, worked as an intelligence officer. And, uh, you know, I, I had um, had dealings with OSI. Uh, however, most of mine were positive. Unfortunately, yours were not. Um and, uh, yeah, t take us to that point because I think that's where it really gets interesting. And, and let me just say this. Uh, here we are on Veterans Day, and, uh, you know, I, I served 25 years in the Air Force, had a great career, um, had wonderful experiences for the most part. Uh, but hearing this story really kind of takes me back, and I think, wow, um, but but let's get into that before we talk any more about that. Maybe if you can get into what happened when the OSI uh, agents arrived. Yeah, I sure can. I'm in a hospital bed, and uh, the lights were turned off for my comfort. So lights hurt my eyes. The hospital commander gave us an order, gave me an order, that I was to have no contact with Senior Airman Tobias in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and I didn't understand that. Uh, but, you know, he says, that means uh, 
no passing of notes, no contact through third parties. You're not to talk to uh, Senior Airman Tobias. Do you understand me? And of course I said yes, but no, I didn't really understand the reason. Uh, and they, they cut orders for him to Japan. Uh, I mean, like at light speed. I mean, he was PCS gone. And but let me get back to my hospital stay. My night nurse came in, and she had a uh, pain medication. They give me pain medication at night. And, uh, and you know how it is. I mean, we worked in the hospital squadron, and you kind of take care of your own, so they made sure I was comfortable. And as she came in, uh, these two guys in business suits, blue business suits, walked in behind her. And the elder guy was kind of short, and he had the flat top haircut like it was in the 60s, and the square jaw kind of thing going on. And he says, if, if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it'll have to wait. We have to ask him just a couple questions. And, of course, then they, they show us the nurse and they show me their credentials. I noticed that the guy in charge was a major and the other guy was a captain. And the captain uh, raised up my the foot of my bed and they started interrogating me. And uh, I had never had any interaction with law enforcement before. So I'm scared out of my wits. And uh, I knew this. I wasn't about to tell anyone what I saw, uh, because I was seriously worried I'd end up on a psych ward. Right. That'd be the end of any career, genuinely. Even if our two accounts matched, we'd both be on a psych ward. So he asked me, what, did, what were you boys doing down there? Do you have a little marijuana plot down there? Is that what this is about? And I mean, this is 1977, and I got, you know, thoughts of Leavenworth flashing through my mind. Because I'm thinking, what if by happenstance somebody's growing a little marijuana out there and they want to hang it on us? Right. And I said, no, sir, no, sir, no, sir. That's not, that's not the case. That's not the case. And he says, well, then why would you leave and leave all your stuff there? I just don't understand that. And that was a valid question. Sure. And I couldn't answer. So anyway, at the end of the discussion, the nurse came back and said, you know, doctor so-and-so wants a... Uh, Sergeant Lovelace to have his pain medicine now. And they pack up their stuff. And, um, oh, they had me sign six forms. Uh, one of them was a consent to uh, hypnotic regression and chemical enhancement. Now, those not be, might not be the exact words, but they're pretty darn close. I had flash burns to my eyes, and it hurt to read. And to tell you the truth, I was so scared, I... I didn't really read much. And uh, the nurse gives me an injection. She leaves. The captain leaves. He swoops up all the forms I've signed and throws them in his briefcase. And then he shuts the door. And he turns the light out, which was kind. And he gets he kind of drops this tough guy affect on his face. And he gets down right next to my ear. And he whispers. And he says... Son, he had this Louisiana accent. If you've ever heard Calvin Parker speak, that Louisiana thing going on, it was like, Son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there, didn't you? And I didn't answer him. 
And he says, oh, I think you know what I'm talking about. We both know what I'm talking about, don't you? And I said, no, sir. He says, yes, you do. And, you know, I had this reputation among, in the hospital squadron for being an amateur photographer. I liked photography out of black and white dark rooms set up in my house and base housing, or my house. And uh, so everyone in the squadron knew I was an amateur photographer. And uh, I forgot my camera, honestly, yeah. And But Toby had his. And, you know, the thought of taking a, a picture of this thing never crossed our mind. Never crossed our mind. But this OSI agent says, all I want to know is how many pictures of it you took and where's your camera and, and give me your film. And this will all go away. It's easy as that. And I said, sir, I didn't take any pictures of anything. And he turns back on the tough guy aspect, and he gets down and says, I don't believe you. And he left. And he knew. I don't know how he knew, but he knew. Um, I mean, he, he said it by inference, but I don't know what in the world else he could have been referencing. You know? Right. And then uh, I had that confirmed six weeks later when they called me to the USI office. And uh, they sat me down in an interrogation room. And I'm, you're probably familiar with them. I got familiar with them in law, when I law practice, you know, uh, the rooms with the, the framed mirror on the wall. And this had a small room with uh, those gray military-style desks in the 1950s. And the... Uh, padded uh, chair on rollers that goes with the desk. And then in each corner of the room, there was one of those uh, fiberglass chairs from the 60s uh, and a clock on the wall, and that was it. And um, I got sat in this room by myself and told someone would be right with you. Well, it wasn't right away. It was like three hours later. And I think that was calculated on their part. Uh, I do. And uh, and you may know that you may know that better than I, but I think that's probably the case. And finally, the two OSI agents that were in my hospital room came in, and they ignored me at first. And then the lead agent uh, said, "Well, did you find any camera and a film for me yet?" And I said, "No, sir. I don't have. I don't. I don't have anything." And he says, well, it doesn't matter. He says, we can maybe clear this up today and close your file. Would you like that? And I said, yes, sir, I'd like that very much. I'd like to put this behind me. And he says, good, that's very good. Well, you'll just cooperate with us today and we'll, we'll get through this, okay? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, and you know you're going to be hypnotized today, right? And I said, hypnotized? No, sir, I didn't know that. And I don't understand why. And he cuts me off. And he goes through my file, pulls out that piece of paper that I signed, and he slams it down at the desk in front of me, and he says, is that not your signature, son? And I said, yes, sir, it is. And I knew that, you know, I'm going to have to do this. And I'm thinking for a moment I should ask for a lawyer or do something else. And I, and I spoke up, and I, and I said, sir, I just don't understand why and I don't, I really don't want to be hypnotized. And he says, well, you don't have to be, son. And nobody got a gun to your head. 
He says, I'll tell you what we'll do. If you want, I'll tear this paper up for you right now and uh, throw it away. And uh, then I'll just see you at a court martial. How's that sound? And, you know, this guy is really playing tough with me. And uh, it's all because he thinks I've got pictures of this thing we saw. And, and I didn't. And a minute later, there's a knock at the door, and this major walks in with oak leaves and no name tag and what looks like a shaving kit under his arm. And I thought, ah, oh, this must be their hypnotist. And, you know, I had been taking psychology classes for a couple of years at night, uh, working on a BA, and uh, I knew that I could not be hypnotized against my will. And uh, now the drug they gave me, uh, I found out since, was sodium amytal. And uh, it's a short-acting hypnotic. And they must have given me several injections. And the major opens his little kit, and he's got a syringe in there, a little towel he lays out, you know, a rubber hose, a tie around my bicep, and uh, some alcohol swabs. Band-Aid, um, and uh, he's like, he's talking to the agents at first, ignoring me, then he switches it to his attention to me. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus he turns on this great big smile and holds his hand out and says sarge buckley it's so nice to finally meet you and i said yes sir nice to meet you too sir and he says terry for purposes of today's little exercise would you call me brad that is my name and it felt uncomfortable but i said yes brad and he says, and for purposes of today's little exercise, can I just call you Terry? That is your name. And I said, sure. Like, what am I going to say? <laughs> and then he says, I understand you're from St. Louis. And I said, yeah, I'm from St. Louis. And he starts rattling off some uh, uh, landmarks and talking about the Cardinals and, uh, you know, kind of to establish common ground with me. And then I actually realize I'm starting to feel at ease with this guy. And I realized I'm 22 years old. I ain't that interesting. So <laughs> I think he sensed that. I do. Because he abruptly changed. And he said, Terry, this is important. And he's getting real close to me, encroaching into my personal space. And he says, Terry, do you trust me? 
And I thought, do I trust you? Like, how do I trust you? You know, but I said what he wanted to hear. I said, yes, Brad, I trust you. And he says, that's good. That's very good that you trust me. He said, now, Terry, I'm going to give you a little medication in your arm, and it'll be a real pleasant feeling. He says, you know, it'll make you feel like you had a few beers. And he winks at me and says, it looks like the kind of guy that enjoys a few beers on the weekend. And I thought, you expletive. You know, <laughs> what do you think? All enlisted guys drink, you know? I was, I was really offended by that. Right. Uh, but, of course, I didn't say anything. And uh, he took me through this hypnotic regression um, progressive relaxation exercise. You're familiar with it, I'm sure. You know, not not you entirely. Release the tension in your scalp, release the tension in your arms, your legs, your toes, feeling relaxed, feeling 10 times more relaxed. And he says, now I want you to visualize the stairwell. Can you see the stairwell in your mind's eye, Terry? Take that first step and go down that first stair, feeling twice as relaxed now. Take another step down, the third step, now three times more relaxed. Every muscle loose, feeling safe, feeling warm, you know. And he had this voice like a radio announcer. It was just easy to listen to. And in my mind's eye, I'm going back up the stairwell. And I'm determined not to surrender my mind to this exercise. And I, I mean, I'm playing Beatle music in my head. I'm doing everything I can not to give him my full attention. And I think that worked to some degree. But, of course, I had no control over the sodium amitol. And I remember he asked me, he says, and you had told me with camping, right? And I said, yes, Brad. And he says, my, that must have been exciting. And you saw some funny lights in the sky, didn't you? And I said, yes, that's right, Brad. And he says, were they stars, Terry? And I said, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think they're stars. And he said, of course not. They're not stars, are they, Terry? What are they, Terry? And I said, it's a spaceship. And he said, who are they, Terry? And I said, they're the space people. And I couldn't believe, I could not believe that came out of my mouth. <laughs> and the crazy thing was, I could see this all replay in my head like watching a movie. And I couldn't help but speak. I mean, I just... You know, I've got these mental images flashing in my head. And when he asks me a question, I feel compelled to answer. And I guess that's the purpose of the uh, of um, sodium amytal, is to take away that inhibition, that, uh, that desire to hold back. Kind of like a truth serum. Yeah. And there's no doubt in my mind, he knew what we saw. He asked for a description, and I, and I told him everything that I saw. Uh, funny thing, I, I overheard the captain say, in the beginning of the hypnotic thing, I heard him say to the major, I'm amazed every time I see him do this. And this is when he's going through the progressive relaxation part of the hypnosis session. And I heard that, and I thought, I thought, one, number one, I wasn't supposed to hear that. And number two, I thought, uh, 
my God, how many people do you guys hypnotize? You know, <laughs> and uh, it was it was a a, a long and an arduous. Uh, you know, it seemed like an hour had passed, but I was actually there closer to four. And uh, he actually dredged up from my subconscious memories that I wouldn't have today had they not hypnotized me. Interesting. Because this little hypnotic session of his pulled all this stuff into my conscious mind. And I, I mean, I don't think this is fantasy. I mean, I saw this stuff with my eyes. This was, this was a memory I was reliving about being inside the ship and seeing these aliens. Um, and I know it, I know it was real. Uh, it's haunted my sleep for 40 years. You know, my, uh, we have, my wife and I had two adult children, uh, 39 and 34. And all my kids ever knew was that, you know, once or twice a year, dad would wake up with screaming nightmares. But uh, they never knew this until 2018 when I, when I put this book up. And they're both scientists, right? So uh, if, 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 you can't, if you can't prove it through peer review, they're not interested. Sure. And they're like, Dad, have you lost your mind? <laughs> <laughs> so mom and, uh, my, or their mom, my wife, and I sat down with them and said, no, this really happened back when, we, you know, when your dad was in the Air Force. So, so and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Getting back to this hypnotic regression session that you're going through with Brad, um, he's trumping up some pretty interesting things as I was reading through on the book. And these really kind of come back to you, these haunting memories. But uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, you, you saw these beings, you're inside the craft, kind of what happens, give us a little bit of an idea of what happens inside as you're going through this hypnotic regression. Sure. Unfortunately, I don't have a clear linear memory of exactly what happened. Um, all I have is bits and pieces, and I don't think they're in any particular order, so I'll share with you. Um, uh, the memories that uh, Brad, the hypnotist, invoked, pulled forward, uh, and a couple of these have become uh, repeat nightmares that I frequently have. And I'll start with the worst one. The, uh, the nightmare that scares me the most, and, and once this nightmare starts, and this is a PTSD issue, once it starts, I can't bail out of a dream. And uh, it has to run its course. And what's crazy is I can be in the middle of another dream, and this thought will, this invasive thought in the form of a dream will ease its way in and uh, start to play. And I kind of have to wait for the tape to end. And, uh, and it's frightening because I can't wake up. And uh, unless my wife wakes me because I'm thrashing or something. Uh, but uh, the memory of being in this ship was, and I don't know how we got there exactly, but the inside of this thing was twice as big as the outside. And I don't know how in the world that's possible. And I don't know if they if they put us in this thing and took us somewhere else. Because, man, the thing we were in was bigger. I mean, the thing that we saw was like a five-story office building from the outside. 
from the inside, it looked like a football stadium. It was immense. And it had multiple levels, a uh, big, huge, open atrium. Uh, there were like these golf cart things without wheels that are scooting around. And there is this light. I mean, it was like every surface of this ship on the inside radiated light. And it hurt my eyes. And Toby and I were standing next to one another. And we're holding our clothing in our hands. And I'm hearing a woman screaming. And, you know, the screams come in different varieties. I mean, you know, you can say boo to somebody and they'll scream. You know, or somebody will suffer an injury, they'll suffer pain, and then there's a pain response, and that's a very sharp and distinct scream. This woman was in pain. And all I could move was my eyes. And my eyes are darting around, and I'm trying to take everything in that's inside this ship. And I had a curious sighting, and that was there were these, I believe it was six total people, it could have been five. Uh, there was one woman, and the rest were young men. They were about our age, you know, early teens, late, pardon me, late teens, early 20s. They were dressed in tan flight suits with orange insignias of some kind, but they were too far away for me to read, and I didn't have a good field of view to see what the, you know, what the insignia said. I'd love to find out. And they had military-style haircuts, uh, which wasn't the style in 1977. And I noticed their boots. They had they had what looked like issue combat boots to me. And so, they complete, completely ignored us, would not look in our direction. If I, if I uh, could just interject for a sec here, Terry. Um, the thing that I found interesting here is, uh, and you mentioned this in the book, as you're going through the hypnotic regression, uh, Brad, this fellow interrogating you, uh, he basically told you forget about what you saw with these guys in the tan flight suits. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Not only that, but when I said when I started that story, I heard the major say, "Oh, expletive," um, and paper shuffling, and uh, I mean it was like I struck a nerve with a dental drill. I don't know. I know that they were crew members, though, for this reason. Uh, the, this one kid who was blonde walked over to a panel in the wall and waved his hand across the wall, and something opened, slid across, and he did something, like he was pushing buttons, and then closed it. And then they walked away. And uh, no question, they, they were absolutely crew members. And I think they were human. Wow. Unbelievable. And uh, now you remember seeing in the book, you talk about these aquariums that you've seen inside the craft. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. At one point, before we were standing there frozen, before we were, the little gray guy stripped us of our clothing, um, we were marched down this long corridor, and on my right, there were these um, uh, fish aquaria. And, and, and actually, walking is the wrong word. We were on some kind of uh, uh, 
automatic sidewalk thing like they have at the airport. We weren't walking, we were riding more or less, standing up. And I'm looking at these aquariums. And during the hypnosis session, I'm feeling a lot of anxiety. And he says, um, what do they look like, Terry? And he kept saying, you know, don't tell me what you think. Just tell me what you see. Tell me what you see in your mind's eye, Terry. And, uh, you know, that's what I did. And uh, these fish aquariums of all sizes, and, and inside was pink water and what looked like embryos. And in some of the larger ones, there was an embryo that looked like a puppy to me. Um, it with folds of skin over its head, you know, and maybe ears, I'm not sure. But as I'm looking at it, an eye opened, and it scared me to death. And when I had that dream, I wake up screaming. I don't know what those things were, but I don't think they were human embryos. They may have been, I have no idea what they were. I mean, do you think it's um, it's possible these were human alien hybrid embryos that you're seeing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have nothing to base that on but conjecture, but yeah. And uh, I think so. these beings, the, the shorter ones that you're talking about now, are these the, the typical gray aliens that a lot of abduction uh, uh, abductees have reported? They are the same. The ubiquitous gray guys. And I have a theory about them. And I'll share it with you briefly. It's, I don't. I don't think they're living sentient beings like you and I. 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 I think there may be a a crossover uh, between biological material, artificial intelligence, maybe quantum computer, nanotechnology. Who knows what? But I think they are manufactured. I don't think that they're born, and I don't think that they are alive in the sense that you and I are. And I. And, and I don't think they're all that smart. And I've heard this this uh, similar stories about these um, the small gray alien creatures that perhaps they may be clones uh, and uh, uh, similar to what you're talking about just just the physical characteristics and and the way they behave so so that's interesting. Now were there any taller gray beings because those are also reported a lot too and I've heard in abduction accounts. When, when, when I was standing there frozen, um, before they took Toby, they took Toby, and I was standing there alone, and I heard him scream, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, and then scream, and I thought, oh, my God, what's coming up for me? Um, while that's going on, my eyes are darting all over, and the little gray guys are everywhere, and they're all, they're all walking like they're on a mission. And I saw this guy who was about six foot tall, and he had a chalkish, pinkish complexion and looked humanoid, um, except for really no ears, no nose, just a slit for a mouth. And he had uh, black wraparound eyes, but not hyper-exaggerated like you see in the motion pictures. And uh, just a little bit larger than a pair of Ray-Bans, really. And it's obvious that this guy is carrying himself with some kind of authority on this ship. 
and I'm straining my eyes to the left as far as they can go. And just, just by coincidence or happenstance, he turns his head and we locked eyes. This probably scared me as much or worse than anything else that happened on that thing. And that is that when we locked eyes, in a millisecond, this guy was in my head. And I mean, he must have downloaded my mind or something because I knew he knew my wife, he knew my dreams, he knew my secrets, he knew me. And all I got reflected back from those eyes was raw intellect. And it was damn scary. It was very scary. And you talked about that a little bit in the book, and this that is a very frightening aspect of this, and it's kind of as though they were just going about what they had to do without any regard for, uh, I think you mentioned there's no anesthesia uh, in the procedures, and that they're kind of just going about the business, their business, without any regard to maybe how you feel, uh, how it's, you know, painfully, how it's, you know, it's hurting you with, with what they're doing. Can you talk a little bit more about that aspect? Yes. Yeah. I was on the table. It finally came my turn, and they loaded me on the table. The gray guys did like I was a plank of wood. And um, I'm screaming. And I'm filling my lungs with air, and I'm screaming as loud as I can, and I can't hear anything come out of my voice. I cannot hear anything. And at the foot of the table are a couple of graves, and there's this seven-foot-tall insectoid-looking thing. Now, forever in my mind's eye, I picture him in a lab coat, but I'm sure he, I'm sure he wasn't wearing a lab coat. And I was in a, 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 round, a round room, domed, low ceiling, and uh, this Dr. Bug is doing something to my lower spine and it hurts and i have early onset of degenerative spine disease and i think i i i blame et for my uh, for my injury but i'm screaming and i guess i am making noise because i'm annoying this dr bug thing and it turns this big bulbous head with these two huge eyes into my direction and looks me in the eye and I heard him in my head with crystal clarity. And he said, why are you screaming? Stop screaming. You know we don't hurt you. You know we take you back. Stop screaming. And he reached over and pecked me on the head with his finger, this big green digit, and I was out. And, you know, I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome or what, um, you know, the guy with the chalky pink complexion that got in my head scared me. Um, but this Dr. Bug, I, you know, I had the feeling, I had the feeling that if, if we could sit down in different circumstances, that he would say, hey, man, just doing my job. You know? Sure. Uh, I don't know if, um, I guess in their mind, under their sense of ethic and ethics, the behavior, if you hurt someone and then erase the memory of it, it's okay. And you know, that's kind of, kind of practiced in modern medicine today. Um, 
There are several hypnotic drugs, Forset being the one that comes to mind, where they can uh, give you the medication and you'll be relaxed. Uh, but there's an um, amnesia component to the medication, and you won't remember the unpleasantness of it. So in a way, we're kind of uh, kind of practicing what they what they were doing. Right. Uh, I guess they uh, they have a different code of ethics, I'm sure. Interesting. Yeah, and um, going back to the OSI agents, because uh, you know this this is the the part that kind of troubles me is the fact that and you already alluded to this is that they seem to already know what had happened out there. Uh, that this craft had showed up, and uh, just curious, what 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 are your thoughts on that? I mean, why would they have already known about this? And uh, you know, I'm I'm sure that you've thought about that many times, but why? How on earth did they already know about this this event occurring? You know, in the, in the last chapter, I gave uh, three hypotheses. Uh, you know, I, I opined, one, that we could be working shoulder-to-shoulder with E.T. toward a shared agenda. Number two, um, E.T. could be in a quid pro quo, I hate to use that term, an exchange, this for that, where we give them free reign to abduct and experiment on X number of people and cattle, in exchange for technology, so maybe it's a business relationship. Or the third option would be that they call the shots, we have no control, and we do what we do what they say. And it's got to be one of those three. It has to be one of those three. Yeah, it is it is certainly troubling to think about. And uh now you mentioned there was uh, were there there were other human captors on board the ship, and uh, sure. yeah. Now, do you think that they were permanent passengers? I mean, I think you mentioned something about that in the book, if I'm right. Uh, but can you talk about that a little bit? I can, and that's another subject for Clint Harris. Um, there were other humans on board that thing. And when we were, but we were segregated from them. They were kind of off to the side. And what, what I found so troubling was it was a mix of men, women, and children. And um, they were all like us. Uh, they were all nude. And they were frozen like us and could move nothing except their eyes. And when I looked to my right, I could see them fairly clearly. And they're all crying. And their eyes are darting all over the place. And uh, that's just a frightening memory. Now, I tell you, I uh, thought about it over the years, and, you know, they kicked Toby and me out. Um, but those people stayed. That They went up when that thing went up. And then David Politis came on the scene a couple years back and started talking about... Uh, state and national park disappearances. And I thought, oh my God, you know, I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad we were able to get off the train. I don't know where those people went, but I, I, I wouldn't trade places with them for anything. 
and it's interesting you mentioned David Politi's uh, missing 411 and the work he's done. It It is truly disturbing to think that people are disappearing and there's no trace of them. And where the heck could they be going? I mean, you know, there's no, there's some of these accounts, there's no trace of, you know, blood, animal tracks, like if they were attacked by an animal, uh, they just simply disappear. They're gone. They're vanished. They never reappear. And I think the number I'd heard is somewhere over 40,000 a year just in the United States alone. Um, yes, that's that, the number I heard. That, that they've never, ever found these people. And you have to wonder, uh, to me, uh, uh, you know, it, this seems like the most likely explanation. I mean, I don't know what else you could think. I mean, unless there's some sort of interdimensional thing where these people are disappearing into another dimension, some other, or, I mean, it's just bizarre. And uh, you have- it is, it is bizarre and it's troubling. It, it is. It's very troubling, and it makes me – Yosemite seems to have a large cluster of these cases, and uh, it makes me never want to go camping at Yosemite, even though it's a beautiful yeah. place to visit. Um, yeah, it, I, I won't go camping in my backyard. So. <laughs> yeah, I can't say that I blame you there. Now, talk a little bit about – because you, um, you were a runner. You, you ran, I think you said, four miles a day uh, for, for many years. And then yeah. you discovered this weird, some sort of weird thing above your knee. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can. Um, when I got out of the Air Force in 1979, um, and I started studying and, uh, you know, spending days in the library, I started putting on weight. And, uh, you know, we, we call it running now. Um, and we don't think about seeing someone running on the street. But if you think about it, prior to about 1970, I mean, if you saw somebody on the street running, you know, if somebody was chasing them, I mean, <laughs> it's, I mean, really, I mean, look through old pictures and old movies, you never see anyone out exercising running on the street. They either ran on an athletic field or, or not at all. You know, if you were running and, and the city, you'd be arrested, you know, for flight, you know. Sure. So it was a new fad. In my point, is my point, and uh, I embraced it. I enjoyed the endorphins. I enjoyed the the ability to uh, control my weight. And um, but I noticed that in from 1979, every time I would hit the two mile mark in my run, I'd have a spot on my right knee that would go absolutely numb, and I mean, numb like, uh, you know, like a shot of Novocaine from the dentist, kind of numb and itchy, numb and itchy. And I asked my doctor about it, and she said, ah, you know what, it's probably some kind of histemic reaction. I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, if it doesn't affect your run, I, would, I, I wouldn't give it a concern. So I didn't, you know, until 2012. And in 2012, I, uh, I had a... Uh, problem with my right knee. I couldn't put weight on it. It hurt like, like mad just to try to stand. And I get all my care, medical care from the VA. And uh, since I left government service, I don't, I don't get, uh, I don't get uh, health care anymore. Um, so, and, and, I got, and I have no complaints about the VA. I don't, don't mean it that way. Uh, but my wife took me to the VA. 
and uh, sat in the ER for a while, and, and then a PA examined me, and rolled me, they rolled me into the x-ray room, and an x-ray tech took a shot on my knee, two shots, one was called a PA for posterior anterior, and uh, then a shot from the side, one head on and one sideways. And uh, she says, uh, I hear her playing around with the films. It's all digital now. The films come out pretty quick. And she says, uh, Sir Lovelace, or Mr. Lovelace, have you uh, ever been in a combat situation or something to, to account for a piece of metal in your leg? And I said, no, no, I was fortunate. I never left the States. And she, she took two more pictures and then two more pictures. And uh, she said, I'm going to have the radiologist come down and take a look. And I said, hey, look, you know, I was a medic in the Air Force, and, you know, I practiced healthcare law for most of my career. Um, you know, I'm comfortable around medical people. Can, they're my x-rays. Can I see what you're talking about? And she's like, sure. So she pulls them out and pops them in a light box. And I didn't see it at first, but, but really, if you look at the x-ray, you don't need a medical degree to see it. It looks like a it looks like an electronic component in my knee, above my knee, and lateral toward the right. And then in the calf of my leg muscle, the calf muscle of my leg rather, there are half a dozen little tic tac shaped items, and they're arranged in a floral pattern with a little dot in the middle. And the radiologist comes down, and first he looks at the film that has the piece of metal with the two wires attached to it, about the size of a fingernail. And he walks over to my, my uh, leg, and he points, pokes me in the leg and says, uh, the skull will be right here. And uh, he asked me to take off my pants. He wanted to look at my leg. And uh, he was amazed. He was frustrated. And he says, I know it's got to be here. And he, he went as far as to kill the overhead lights. I mean, the x-ray room was dark anyway. And get out a little handheld, um, look like a black light. And he said that scar tissue will fluoresce under a black light. And what he was concerned about is the lack of scar tissue. He said, any time that you, you violate the integrity of your skin and you go deep enough into fascia to embed an item like that, there's going to be a scar, and you can't avoid it. There's going to be scar tissue, residual scar tissue. And uh, he looked at my leg for 10 minutes, and I said, Doc, I ain't got no scar there. I've never had an accident. I've, I've never had an injury to that knee. There is no scar. And uh, he was just blown away. And I asked him, I said, hey, Doc, how often is it that you find a foreign object under the skin without there being a corresponding scar. And he said, never. In 20, I've been a radiologist 23 years. I've never seen it. He said, sometimes the scars can migrate an inch or two, depending on your weight and passage of time. But you have no scar. He says, I can't account how this thing got under your skin. And then he addressed the thing in my calf. I have these things in my calf muscle. And he says, I thought this was peculiar. He says, on x-ray film, they appear to be the same consistency as bone tissue, but I think not. It's that, but I think not, that I wondered about. And he says, you know, bone tissue doesn't just sprout in the middle of the muscle. So he says, I, I don't know what this is. It's a new one on me.
and uh, I'm on the way home, and my wife and I are driving. She's driving with my leg, and uh, all of a sudden, I have flashbacks to 1977, and I'm thinking, the, the spot on my knee when I run two miles, and I put it all together, and it all made sense, and that was the catalyst. That was the event that made me determined to write a book and tell as many people as I can and speak whenever I can because you said it within the first four minutes of the broadcast. You said people need to know the truth. And um, the truth is important. You know, I know that from law. I see the importance of truth. So, you know, I tried to tell my story without embellishment. Some of the things are so outrageous, it's hard to ask people to believe and accept. And you don't have to. But uh, just be aware that it's a big universe and there's a lot of crazy things out there. Yeah, Tara, as you say, you know, once, first of all, thank you so much for, for coming out and sharing the story. Uh, there's just so much more coming out, it seems like, nowadays. Uh, you know, and, you know, now we've got uh, the Navy coming out and saying, yeah, these, uh, these uh, cockpit videos, they're the real thing. I mean, uh, they're tracking UFOs. And uh, I'm just curious what your take is on this, because, first of all, horrible the way the OSI treated you. Uh, and, you know... I think about that. You're a lawyer. You think about the them making you sign those papers. I, I mean, a lawyer could have tore that to pieces. I mean, you were in no condition, first of all, to be reviewing all the paperwork and uh, knowing exactly what you're signing. And I suppose that was part of their plan to begin with. But it, it just saddens me. Uh, you know, I said I, I had a 25-year Air Force career, 13 years of those of active duty, another 12 as an IMA reservist. I had a great career. I really did. But it saddens me to hear that people who have, have experienced these things like yourself, uh, the way they were treated and they, the way they were dealt with, um, nobody who's a military member like that deserves to be treated that way. It's sad. And, uh, you know, it, it just it just bothers me that, that to think that that's the way people who back in those days had these encounters, the way they were dealt with. I'm curious to know now the way you see things now. Do you think people are still treated this way, or do you think it's handled a lot differently? Um, boy, I don't know. And I, I'm just kind of would like to get your take. I always do when I have, um, you know, when I have uh, guests on who've wrote, written about the UFO phenomena, abductions, that sort of thing. So, you know, you mentioned uh, in passing, you mentioned Tom DeLong to the Stars Academy. We, you know, we, we have all this effort going on uh, and there seems to be some level. If you I would say probably soft disclosure. Um, we haven't had the government officially come out and say, yeah, UFOs are real, not on any sort of official capacity. Uh, we did have Christopher. We did have Christopher Sherwood. It was DOD spokesman say ATIP did exist and uh, it was involved in studying UFOs. So I think that's kind of a soft disclosure. Uh, where do you think th see things going on the UFO front, and are you uh, are you optimistic about where things are going right now? Um, I wish I could say I was more optimistic, uh, but 
I have I have some concerns about um, you know where we're headed and um, what may be around the corner. Yeah, and I, I think I'm cautiously optimistic, um, but I, I'm i just getting my sense from what I've read and what I've heard that, you know, these draconian measures that used to be in place and what you had to deal with in the 70s kind of seem to have somewhat disappeared. Uh, and it's almost as if now we're in a spot, and, and again, this is just my opinion, uh, is that we're kind of in a spot now where the government's not really coming out and saying anything. Uh, they don't seem to be spreading disinformation like they were years ago. At least that's my sense. Maybe they are at some level. Uh, but perhaps we are getting closer just based on that. Um, but, but again, well, that is just my opinion on, the, on where we're you at. Know, I, I, no, I think you're absolutely spot on. Uh, and uh, so getting back to, you know, kind of your sense of where things are, but so it sounds like you're a little bit more optimistic, but still very cautiously optimistic. Is that fair to say? Well, I'm optimistic about disclosure. Uh, disclosure is coming. But yeah, there's been, there's been a lot transpired. Um, well, I'll, I'll stop there. I'll just say I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, I'm, I'm concerned that... Um, and I don't want to be an alarmist. I, I really don't. But uh, I'm concerned that, um, you know, there are unfriendly entities out there and friendly entities out there. And, uh, you know, there could be uh, some kind of uh, war. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that. I had Rob Shelsky on the show uh, probably two or three episodes ago. He wrote the book Deadly UFOs, and he doesn't think these guys are our space brothers. Uh, he thinks, and, and you know, I, I would imagine based on your experience, you probably don't think they are either. Uh, but it sounds like you also are open to the idea that there may be more benevolent uh, ETs visiting us. Is that kind of where you sit on this? Yeah, I mean, I think there are different races. Uh, and I think that they have different agendas, and I think some are, some are benign, some are benevolent, and some are malevolent. You know, I, um, for whatever reason, they didn't kill us. So um, I'm, I'm grateful to them for that. But, uh, you know, if... Um, you know, if uh, the guy with the pinky chalkish complexion ever came down, to, came up to me, I would shoot him dead <laughs> <laughs> without a moment's hesitation. I got nothing but evil from him. From those eyes, there was no empathy. There was just, just fright. Sure. And if, if those are the guys that attack uh, our civilization, we're screwed. You know, because they controlled my mood. Uh, they had total control over us. Yeah, it's and those four, four people that were left in the ship, they had total control over them. It's it is frightening to think about. You know, the more I've uh, interviewed people, I mentioned Rob Shelsky. Now this conversation, it's certainly if I do see a UFO, I'm not sure I want to sit around too long, especially if it's in close proximity to be filming this thing, uh, because you never know what's going to happen. But. Uh, at this point, I think we'll go ahead and wrap up here, Terry, but uh, if you could share 
uh, and I would, I would like to talk for just a minute offline after we're done here. If you could share, you know, where, where listeners can find your work, whether uh, you have a website, anything like that, where they can find the work uh, that you do. Yes, I have a website. It's terrylovelace.com. Very easy. And, and you, can pur- you can purchase my book there or on Amazon. It's in, um, uh, I believe, the Kindle version is still $2.99. Um, and it's in paperback with, uh, with all the pictures and the x-rays. And then I did an audio book that uh, sounds very well. Matter of fact, I was uh, real happy. On Amazon, uh, 19 months now after, I, after its release, I, was, uh, I hit number one in genre last month on Kindle and number two in genre on uh, the audio book. So uh, people seem to really like to listen to the audio book. It's kind of a fun way to do it. I was told to hire a voice artist. I didn't want to do that. Uh, not because of the cost, but because I wanted it to be in my own voice. I don't have a radio voice, I don't think, but but at least it's my story. Sure. And, uh... Yeah, so on Amazon, it's Incident at Devil's Den. My Facebook page is Incident at Devil's Den. Uh, there's a Shop Now button there, too. Uh, so, yeah, Incident at Devil's Den on Amazon. Read my reviews. I've got 4.6 out of 5 stars with 250 reviews. So it's been well-received. And I think I think uh, your audience would enjoy it. The opportunity to be here. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Any UFO conferences or anything coming up that you're speaking at? Yes, I'm speaking with Leslie Keen at Rice University this Friday. We are invited guests of the humanities department, and we'll be speaking to the entire humanities faculty and PhD candidates in a closed session, no cameras, and no public invited. Um, so that'll be, that'll be interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, you know, here's an academic setting that's uh, taking a serious interest in this subject. And I'm thinking that hopefully, you know, hopefully that's a, ch- a change in attitude and maybe uh, the beginning of embracing this as a, as a science and not a, a pseudoscience or you know, take it out of the classification of paranormal and put it into the classification of something to be to be uh, maybe studied by peer review. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, I have that. I am speaking at um, um, in San Francisco at uh, AlienCon. Uh, I should be at Roswell again this year. Um, and uh, contact in the desert. Uh, and hopefully, Karen comes through UFO Congress again. Uh, oh, and then the uh, Eureka Springs UFO Conference in Eureka Springs, Arkansas, in April. So come, see me if you can. I'd love to meet you, hear your story. Uh, take all the time in the world to talk to you. So, yeah, it's going to be a busy year. Great. Well, uh, hey, once again, Terry, thank you so much for joining me. And, uh and uh, what a great day to, to for us to talk and do this interview on Veterans Day of all days. <laughs> Thank you again for your service. Thank you for sharing your story and coming out and doing this uh, again. I think we all need to hear more truth about this subject. And, and uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming out and sharing your story and talking with me. Yes. Thank you so much for the time. 
Okay, so that's going to do it for tonight's show. And uh, big thanks to Terry for joining me on the show again. I've been trying to make this interview happen for some time. So uh, it was amazing to be able to talk with Terry and uh, learn about what is really a quite a disturbing abduction account. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is coming into the holiday period, you know, there's normally an episode. I normally put out an episode on the 1st and 15th of every month. I will not be putting out a 15 December episode this month. Uh, I have a lot of things going on going into the holidays, and I'm trying to finish up the book. And so I'm going to go ahead and forgo the uh, 15 December episode and uh, go back to regular programming starting in the new year on 1 January. And uh, hopefully we'll be going into 2020 with a bang. I'm really looking forward to uh, a lot of great interviews, a lot of great shows in 2020. Again, thank you so much for tuning into the show, and uh, have a great night, everybody.